We are the only women who bring forth men. A quote from Gorgo, queen of King Leonidas of Sparta. Hello and welcome to the Western Traditions Podcast. My name is Rob Paxton, and this is a continuation of my second series of episodes called The Greek Sun. In today's episode, I will tell the story of the Spartans. Before we begin, though, I encourage you to check out the website for this podcast, western-traditions.org. That's western-traditions.org. There you can listen to all the episodes, find some helpful maps and pictures, and discover some good books to read about ancient history and culture. While you're there, you can also choose to support the podcast through PayPal or Patreon, or purchase some Western Traditions merchandise. Wherever you listen, whether it's on Spotify or Podbean or through Google Music or some other means, please remember to like and share and help get the word out. And now, the Greeks emerged from the Dark Age that followed the Bronze Age collapse. In the previous episode, I focused on Thebes and the concept of the city-state, or polis, which was so fundamental to Greek thought and life at this time. Today, let's take a look at the famous city of Sparta and the enigmatic culture of its citizens during the classical age of Greece. First, let's learn some geography. When we speak of Sparta during this period of time, roughly the year 700 BC to around the time of the Persian War in 490 BC, let's say, we need to reference frequently the entire Peloponnesus, aka the Peloponnesian Peninsula. On the website, I have maps of Greece, but you can look up the region anywhere on the internet for reference. The Peloponnesus is that portion of the Greek peninsula to the west of Athens. It is virtually an island, only connected to the mainland by the narrow isthmus of Corinth, which was another famous city of ancient Greece. Now, Sparta is by no means the only city or culture associated with the Peloponnesus. They were, however, during this time, definitely the most powerful militarily in this region, and much of the history of classical Greece will be military. This was a very warlike time in all of Greece, though we tend to remember it for the words of its poets and its philosophers, who were also soldiers, let's remember. Now, Sparta is located in a southern province of this peninsula. The major city of the Spartans was Sparta, but their entire territory was known as Laconia. That's L-A-C-O-N-I-A. Sometimes Sparta was referred to by the name of its ancient mythological king as well, Lacedaemon. That's L-A-C-E-D-A-E-M-O-N, Lacedaemon. Throughout these podcasts, I will stick personally to the name Spartan to describe the people of this culture, but you will hear different figures of the past, now and in future episodes, you will hear them refer to them in various ways, usually as Spartans, but sometimes as Laconians or Lacedaemonians. We do have to be cautious, though, because some speakers will intend to describe the Spartans with these other terms, but at other times they refer to certain free peoples that lived in Spartan territory without actually being true Spartans. Whenever this difficulty arises, though, I will make sure to point it out. The territory of Laconia, in which Sparta was the capital, is the southernmost of the Peloponnese provinces. Like the rest of the peninsula, it is mountainous. Laconia could really be described as the valley through which the river Eurotas cuts. Eurotas is spelled 
E-U-R-O-T-A-S. The river is also named after a famous ancient king. Eurotas, per the myth, was the father of a daughter named Sparta, whom he gave in marriage to Lacedaemon, and from this pair the Spartans claimed descent. Anyway, the terrain dominated by this river and its valley was and is excellent for agriculture, providing good soil for olive trees and pasture land for cattle. Today, the area is especially known for its citrus trees. The capital, Sparta, sits on this river about 20 kilometers from the river mouth at the coast. So, we have the peninsula known as the Peloponnesus. The region of this peninsula in which Sparta sits is known as Laconia, and the Spartans themselves are known as Spartans, Laconians, or Lacedaemonians. Now, how to describe the Spartans, this famed people of ancient Greece? We should probably begin, as the Greeks and most ancient peoples did, with their ancestors, or the story of their ancestors anyway. In a previous episode, I related the story of the Heraclids, the sons of Heracles. Per this myth, Zeus had intended Heracles to be king over a large portion of the Peloponnesus, Laconia, as well as Argos and Pylos, which are to the east and west of Laconia, respectively. Now, after Heracles' death, a man named Eurystheus had usurped his throne and run off his sons and their descendants, who first escaped to Athens before making several attempts over the generations to invade the Peloponnesus and resume their hegemony. During this time, they came into conflict with Atreus, who was the father of Agamemnon and Menelaus. Indeed, the Heraclids eventually were successful in seizing control of the Peloponnesus only after slaying a grandson of Agamemnon's in battle. Now, all this is according to myth, a myth used to explain the cultural and linguistic differences between the Greeks living in the Peloponnesus and those living to the east of them, particularly in Athens, in the islands, and also in Anatolia. This story was also touted by the Spartans, this descent from Heracles naturally, because they prized his masculine qualities so much. In Doric Greek, the dialect that the Spartans and others on the peninsula spoke, Doric Greek was one of the major dialects of this era in Greek history, along with Aeolian Greek and Ionian Greek. Ionian Greek was actually a family of dialects, and the Athenians spoke one of these Ionian dialects. Now, this may seem like a bit of a linguistic and cultural digression, but it will become important when the Greeks finally devolve into civil war at the end of the Classical Age. The sides of that conflict will predominantly match up with these cultural distinctions. Now, the Spartans are remembered in popular culture today primarily for their bravery and their discipline. In particular, they are remembered for the sacrifice of Leonidas and his 300 Spartan warriors at the gates of Thermopylae, where they stood and fell to the last man in an effort to delay the advance of the Persian army so that their fellow Greeks could organize their defenses. But what led up to this? How did the Spartans come to have such a greatly distinguished and distinct culture compared to the peoples that lived all around them? Remember that Sparta is not even 100 miles from Athens, and yet the two cultures during the Classical Age really couldn't be much more different, even though they spoke mutually intelligible languages and were genetically quite similar. The best place to start with is history as written by the Greeks themselves. Several Classical and later Greek authors speak of the Spartans with a certain amount of detail. Let us begin with Plutarch.
Plutarch was a Greek philosopher and writer, born in A.D. 46 in Boeotia. Recall that Hesiod and possibly Homer were also born in that province. Plutarch studied philosophy in Athens, so even though he lived long after many of the great figures of Greek history, he was well positioned to drink deeply from that same river of culture. By the time he was born, in fact, Rome had long since captured and controlled Greece. As an adult, he even became a Roman citizen. Plutarch is most famous for one of his books, Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans. I will be quoting and referencing this work extensively, not just during this series, but also during the Roman series to follow in a year or two. One of the first essays in Plutarch's book is about a Spartan man named Lycurgus. That's L-Y-C-U-R-G-U-S. Lycurgus has his own interesting story, but the key purpose of Plutarch's essay about the man is to relate how he essentially created Spartan culture out of whole cloth in a single generation. It is a remarkable story. It may not be entirely believable, but it is a well-accepted primary source regarding Spartan culture. Now, Lycurgus actually briefly ruled as king over the Spartans and the land of Laconia. By tradition, the Spartans were ruled over by two kings simultaneously. One house or line of kings was elder to the other, but they were apparently obeyed equally. Lycurgus was from the elder line of kings. He inherited the throne after the death of his older brother, but his older brother's wife was pregnant at the time of his death. Court intrigues and the treachery of this woman would have allowed Lycurgus to retain the throne, but being a supremely honorable man, Lycurgus recognized his newly born nephew as the rightful heir of his recently deceased older brother, and therefore one of the two true kings of Sparta, and so Lycurgus abdicated the throne in the newborn's favor. This may have all taken place during the 9th century BC, but the story is pseudo-historical. It may have taken place one or even two centuries later. Regardless, the essay on the man relates in detail the changes which he allegedly brought about in the Spartans. These cultural changes would lead directly to Leonidas, several centuries later, facing down the entire Persian army in the legendary battle at Thermopylae. How did Lycurgus come to be empowered to make the drastic changes to Spartan society, which Plutarch relates to us? After abdicating the throne, he traveled widely, apparently to avoid being caught up in the intrigues of the court, which included threats against his life by one rival faction of the royal family. He went first to Crete, that ancient homeland of culture in the Mediterranean, where he learned about the importance and the virtue of obedience to law. Then he sailed to Anatolia, where he observed the soft decadence of the Ionian Greeks and other cultures living there. Later, he went to Egypt, where he admired the way that they separated their soldiers from regular society, such that the disciplined men of the military had little to no contact with people involved in low mechanical operations. This last is very important because the Spartan men, after the time of Lycurgus, were all entirely soldiers. This is a bit hard to grasp, and I will get into it in more detail later, but Spartan men did not engage in any endeavor besides war and training for war. All other tasks were left either to slaves or to freemen who were normally deprived of many rights and personal weapons, but more on that later. Now, Lycurgus reputedly traveled to other lands as far as Spain and India, according to one ancient account, and he also consulted the oracle at Delphi. According to Plutarch's essay, the man was much missed at Sparta, 
though, and word reached him that the Lacedaemonians wanted him to return with his wisdom. And return he did. After his arrival, with a public mandate for him to cure the ills of society and bring the state into better concord, Lycurgus dictated severe reforms and alterations of the current societal arrangements. He began with the government. History credits Lycurgus with the creation of the Spartan Senate. Twenty-eight men, elders all, who, with the two kings, led the government of the state. This body of thirty men total was known as the Gerousia, that's G-E-R-O-U-S-I-A, a Greek term that could roughly translate as elders. Now, senators had to be over 60 years old because this was the age when Spartan men were no longer required to serve in the military. They were elected by the common assembly of the people, empty offices being filled by those nominees who received the loudest cheers of the crowd. Aristotle famously denigrated this system as silly and pointed out how it could be manipulated by the powerful, in particular by the two kings. And now, hard as it is to believe, Sparta was a democracy of sorts. Proponents of the Spartan government said, in fact, that it flawlessly incorporated every system of government, monarchy, oligarchy, and democracy. The Senate and kings only proposed guidance and initiatives to the people. Decisions, such as choosing to go to war, were made after the Senate and kings had proposed such motions to the gathered assembly of the people, who met outdoors in the open air, as Lycurgus did not want them distracted by buildings or ornaments. However, I should stress that the Spartans looked at law and lawmaking much differently than we do now. We, today, elect bodies of men and women who charge into Capitol buildings intent on churning out new laws, either adding to or replacing or amending older laws, and thus we have an ever-growing body of legal decisions, many of them nonsensical or contradictory. The Spartans had very few laws, and they did not change them. The assembly did not regularly meet to make laws, but to make decisions, as I said before, such as the decision to go to war. Per the wishes of Lycurgus, the law itself was never to be written down. All the necessary laws for organizing and governing the body of the state were found in the retra, that's R-H-E-T-R-A, and this word can variously be translated as the saying, the proclamation, or the statement, or perhaps best for intelligibility in modern American ears, the declaration. This retra, this declaration of the law, was to be memorized and thus inscribed in the hearts of each Spartan at an early age. Now, writing was still used by the Spartans, but only when necessary, not as an art and not when the human voice or the human mind could be used instead. All this underlines just why we have so little of ancient Sparta around today. We can go to Athens and we can see the ruins of this ancient society, especially and most famously the Parthenon. But we have the words as well of its great political leaders and its philosophers and many of its greatest plays. But of Sparta, we have only a few observations of outsiders. Because not only did Lycurgus wish to limit their recourse to writing, he forbade the Spartans to practice any of the mechanical arts. So among the Spartans, there were no architects, masons, carpenters, herdsmen, farmers, etc. How could any society get by without people practicing other trades and arts, you might ask? Well, they had people to do these things. They were all either slaves or certain freedmen living in their territory, but they were not genetically Spartans, and they were only allowed to practice the most basic fundamental trades, such as carpentry or farming. 
Builders made simple dwellings, no temples, nor any other ostentatious, ornamented edifices of any kind. And none of these laborers were prostitutes or men learned in rhetoric or fortune tellers or anything not absolutely required for maintaining the basic needs of life. All men of the Spartan race were forbidden to engage in anything but war and training for war, and their women were entirely dedicated to bringing up the next generation of warriors, though, as we shall see, the Spartan women were much more than humble homemakers. Now, I will discuss the population of slaves and freedmen living among the Spartans later in the episode as well, because they are also an important part of the story. But for now, let's con concentrate on the Spartans and the society like Hergus devised for them. So, the Spartan form of government was apparently quite simple after Lycurgus. Two kings and 28 senators proposed things to the general populace, which acclaimed approval or disapproval in a general assembly. But this would be a rare meeting. There were not a lot of things to decide. The laws were essentially written in stone, even though they were not actually written down anywhere, and they were not up for discussion. One significant change was made to this law, though, this governmental and societal organization, after the life of Lycurgus. According to some historians, anyway, about 130 years after the proclamation of the Retra, a new class of leaders was added to the Gerousia. Five men, known as Ephors, were elected each year from among the entire population of adult male Spartans between the ages of 30 and 60. These men, who could not be re-elected, essentially had supreme power in the Spartan state, though they may have originally only been intended as advisors. What was this law, then? this retra, much of it was focused on guiding the lives of the people to whom it was proclaimed, rather than on mundane matters. It was not a list of ordinances about petty offenses, but rather a grand scheme for how the noble Spartans were to carry out their duties from cradle to grave. Let's begin with the cradle. You were somewhat lucky if you ever got to the cradle. If you were born among the Spartans, they wanted needed only strong, healthy men and women to constitute their army and to produce the next generation of warriors. So all newborns were examined by the elders of the specific tribe or clan to which the parents belonged. If the child was healthy and well-formed, the elders would order it to be reared as befitting its sex, and we will get into the gender-based differences in child-rearing in a moment. But if these men deemed that the child was ill-formed or unhealthy in any way, they would order that it be sent to the apothetae, a chasm or cliff in the Tegetos mountain range, and be thrown off of it. Now, I want to reiterate here that the practices described here and later in this podcast are all according to non-Spartans. Plutarch, who specifically describes this eugenic practice, lived some six centuries after the Battle of Thermopylae. Modern archaeology is believed to have discovered this pit or chasm that's described here, and we have only found the bodies of adult men, presumably criminals thrown to their deaths. No remains of children have been found, so it is possible that the Spartans were not quite so brutal with their offspring. But there is a larger truth here, and that is that post-term abortion, that is exposure or other methods of terminating newborns that were apparently deformed or otherwise unwanted, was a common practice in the ancient world. It was not at all limited to the Spartans. They may have been more nationally organized about it, but they were not unique. In other cultures, parents likely did such things for a variety of reasons and in different ways, so perhaps the Spartans were just notable for elevating the practice to a body of elder decision-makers. 
Anyway, I bring all this up because the Spartans frequently get a bad name for being so terrible with their children, when really everyone everywhere practiced eugenics of some sort or another in the ancient world. I'm not condoning the practice, I'm just making it clear that the Spartans were not all that unique in treating their newborn children this way. So, the Spartan child has passed the initial exam and has escaped death already, having just come into the world. And then the child was bathed in wine rather than water after birth, the Spartans apparently believing that this would be a further physical insult and offer the child a chance to prove, or not, his or her resilience. While they seem hard on their children, the Spartans also desired that their children have and enjoy freedom. For instance, small babies were never to be swaddled, as so many other newborns are, but to be left entirely unconstrained so that they could grow up free to move about and learn the limits of their bodily strength and agility. Like all adult Spartans, children were given plain food to eat so that they would not become soft people accustomed to ease or wealth. When they grew to what we would call school age, they were taught enough reading and writing to get by, to communicate. They were not taught poetry or to write prettily. Their speech, too, was honed like a knife, and they were taught to speak simply and concisely. Indeed, today we still have a term from this era for someone who speaks tersely and honestly, laconic. What we are really saying when we say someone is laconic or speaks laconically, we are saying that he speaks like someone from Laconia, which was another name for the territory of Sparta. Here's an excellent example of that. A fellow Greek once remarked disparagingly on the lack of learning in Laconia to a Spartan man. According to Plutarch, the Spartan responded simply, We have not learned your bad habits. They were taught to be true in their thoughts, speech, and actions. Foreigners would often invite individual Spartan men to come and act as arbiters in their disputes, and they would respect and obey the decisions given by the Spartans because they were trusted not to be corrupt. But back to the camp. The young boys were reputedly left in the darkness frequently as they grew, and they were made to endure solitude as well, so that they might become inured to all the vicissitudes of life and need nothing but themselves. Boys, when they reached the age of seven, were removed from their homes and taken to military camps where they began their martial lessons. Based on Plutarch's description of this early training, we might surmise that life in the Spartan boys' camp was something worse than the boot camp segment of the movie Full Metal Jacket. Immediately, the boys were enrolled in companies in which older boys, who had survived this initial induction into Spartan life, these older boys were their commanders. Imagine an officer's academy today in which senior cadets hold rank and lead junior cadets. The boys played and exercised together, but they went, about, they went around barefoot and they were often left naked in order to be exposed to the elements and to become accustomed to them. They memorized the retra, the founding rules of Spartan life, and they learned, most importantly, to obey their leaders. At age 12, new restrictions were placed, new challenges. They were allowed to have only one garment to wear all year and no underwear. In their little companies, they lived down by the banks of the river Eurotas, where they made their beds and their very lodgings from reeds that they pulled up from the riverbank with their bare hands. They were never given enough food, so they had to steal to survive, but they also had to learn to be stealthy because if caught, they would be punished, even though they were essentially forced to do this. Their masters, the adult men overseeing their training, would whip them before the altar of Artemis for any infraction. Plutarch, even in his own day, centuries after the dominance of Sparta had failed, even Plutarch reports seeing such whippings take place. 
The boys were to thus reach manhood with dry, lean bodies, ready for the harshness of the world. Plutarch also remarks briefly that the boys, in their teenage years, came to take lovers from among their companions. This is something that often surprises many modern Westerners who have a hard time reconciling images of the brutally masculine Spartans and their habitual homosexuality. However, we should remember that we also do not have a good idea of what this term lover really meant in the situation. That it referred to some kind of eroticism among males is not contested, but it also may not have necessarily involved the same arrangement of sexual relations that we typically associate with homosexuality today. I won't digress into details in this point, but simply let us say that the ancient Greeks, they tell us what they knew, that erotic relationships of some sort among men were not surprising or prohibited. However, we do also learn that effeminacy among the Spartan men was most certainly forbidden. Like I said, it's hard for us to imagine how this arrangement worked in the end. We really don't need to understand such details. Now, Spartan girls did not go to the camps to learn the arts of war. Neither, though, were they secluded in the home sewing and cooking. In fact, just like Spartan men, Spartan women did not participate in menial labor. That was left to slaves and hired free women. Thus, Spartan women were spared much of the drudgery associated with keeping a home. Young girls were expected to train physically, not to be warriors, but to nourish and support strong bodies for their childbearing years to come. They also ran about and exercised in the nude. They wrestled and even cast darts in feats of competition with one another. Often they did this in sight of the boys, completely naked, presumably so that both sexes might grow up accustomed to the sight of one another's nudity and not be overly excited by the sight. Such was the childhood of the Spartans, both men and women. What awaited these youths, so fiercely prepared for a cruel world, when they came to adulthood? Men would continue to eat in common with one another, separate from their wives and families. Thus, Spartan men maintained a military spirit amongst themselves, and this was important because the entire male populace, ages 15 to 60, was essentially an army. With the menial labor and the mechanical arts taken up by slaves and non-Spartans living among them, all Spartan men were soldiers in the Spartan army, every last one of them. So they ate at their company's mess, so to speak, and they would stay with this band of brothers their entire lives, eating and socializing with this same group. Past the age of 30, they might live at home, but they would still have to meet with their band of brothers at least once a day to eat and converse. And after supper, they would return to their homes in the dark, as they were trained from their first years to go about in darkness without the aid of torches or other lights. Thus, they might become accustomed to this form of travel so that, as an army on the field of battle, the Spartans might boldly make night maneuvers without error. And speaking of the life of Spartan men, it is appropriate to also speak of this army because that is what they were. The body of Spartan men was synonymous with the army of Sparta. Indeed, the few songs that the Spartans sang all involved martial glory. In parade, the older men would sing about how they had once been young and brave and strong, and the adult men in their middle years would sing how they were now so brave and strong and the young lads in the procession would counter by singing of how they too someday would be the brave and the strong ones. 
Now, bravery, of course, along with fortitude and physical strength and cunning are valued in all societies, but in Sparta, they were appreciated almost to the exclusion of any other qualities in a man. The Spartans, however, with this intimidating army, did not engage in wars of conquest, though they frequently fought with their neighbors. The army was, for the most part, intended to defend the borders of the nation. Once victorious in battle, the Spartan army tended to declare victory and depart, rather than chase down the defeated enemy and destroy him. They had a rule about not engaging with the same enemy too long or too much, so that this enemy would not learn too well how to defend themselves against the Spartans. Though the Spartans would eventually win the Peloponnesian War, its protracted length and its numerous setbacks for the Spartans are a good support for this military doctrine. As for denying themselves conquest, allegedly the Spartans did not want to take control of a lot of foreigners and end up mixing their blood with them, as racial purity and integrity were of supreme importance. As with all rules, though, this was sometimes broken, and I will discuss some exceptions to this one later on. So, Spartan men mostly lived life in military camps, where they practiced marching and combat maneuvers. Those under the age of 30 were forbidden to go into the marketplace, and even older men were discouraged from doing so. Their life was to consist of almost entirely of military training and actual warfare. An observer of Spartan culture famously remarked that they ruled over slaves, only to live like slaves. But you should not think that the life of a Spartan man was truly dreary in any way. Quite the opposite, in fact. Those among us who have experience in military life know how much of it is drudgery, maintenance, repetition, waiting pointlessly. But, as with Spartan women, the life of Spartan men was freed from all this mundane drear by slavery. They had slaves to take care of all their menial labor, the maintenance of their clothes, their tools, their habitations. When Spartan men were not in training or at war, they were accustomed to lead lives of leisure. Indeed, their fellow Greeks were surprised by Spartan indolence, just as Spartans were surprised by their fellow Greeks' busyness. Greek admirers and opponents commented on the Spartans led lives completely unencumbered by the myriad tasks of day-to-day living. They did not have to cook their own food, mend their own clothing, build their own fires, erect their own homes. Outside of training as a warrior, a Spartan man had nothing to do except eat and converse with friends and father many children with his wife. And Spartan men were expected to have wives. Bachelorhood was strongly discouraged, and men who failed to take a wife would be disparaged publicly every year. The thinking, apparently, was that you owed it to the next generation, to the future of your country. If you had the strength and health to survive the Spartan training camp of youth, then you needed to pass on those characteristics and keep the nation strong. But the Spartans, naturally, did not make it easy to acquire a wife. A Spartan man was expected to capture his wife and carry her off, according to Plutarch. However, the Greek historian does not provide any details in this particular practice. He does, though, tell us that even after formal marriage, spending time with your Spartan wife was not made easy. Plutarch relates that Spartan men had to sneak in to see their wives in the middle of the night and then return to their men's camp early in the morning while it was still dark. Now, it's easy to take all these remarks at face value, many people do, and they build up an image of the Spartans that is legendary in status, superhuman. And I certainly would not want to deny that there was something special about the Spartans, something unique. We know that from the vocal admiration that they received from a variety of contemporaries in the classical era, including Socrates, Thucydides, and Xenophon. But we should also wonder about the veracity of these claims. 
especially those found in Plutarch's essay, which was written so much later, so much longer after the Spartans had lost their prominence and vigor, if not their identity completely. Indeed, even in Plutarch's own works, we find apparent contradictions that make us wonder how much of these details were derived from tall tales told about the Spartans in after years. Here are some examples of the apparent contradictions. In one passage, Plutarch speaks of the Spartan men keeping their hair short, essentially shaving their heads, but later on, we learn how they would dress and adorn their hair before a battle. It's hard to picture battalions of men in crew cuts styling their hair before combat. Which was it, short hair or long hair? And what about that story about visiting your wife in the dark? We're told that men married at 30, which is the same age at which men were finally allowed to live outside the army camp. So why would they need to visit their wives in the dark if they were already living at home? And how could it be the younger men doing this if they were not allowed to marry until 30? Also, in his essay on Lycurgus, Plutarch would have us believe that there was no real economy among the Spartans. They had no treasures, no jewelry, not even gold and silver coins, but they just used iron as currency. That the land was divided up into 10,000 share, tens of thousands of equal shares, just enough land for each man to raise a family on it with simple food. Yet we know that there was economic inequality among the Spartans, even if it was not as unequal as it was in other countries. Now, I'm sure that there's a lot of truth to, to much of what Plutarch and others say about the Spartans. They were obviously different. However, as we go on, we should keep in mind that there may be a lot of hero worship involved in the various accounts about these famously formidable warriors who were renowned for their defense of the entire Greek world at the Battle of Thermopylae. And this gratitude and respect for their sacrifice at that mountain pass may have had a lot to do with the possible exaggerations about their culture. So respected were the, Mar the Spartans' martial qualities, though, that other Greek societies often invited Spartan generals to be their army commanders during war with their neighbors, and the Spartans generally accepted these offers, as long as the goal of the fighting was not contrary to Spartan interests. Now, Spartan women were also regaled around the Greek world for their power and prominence in their society. You have to remember that most Greek women of this era, even in Athens, led lives of near seclusion not making public appearances apart from their husbands once they married. If you think about the dialogues of Plato, you'll have to realize that there's not a single woman appearing or speaking in any of them. Well, one exception, Socrates' wife does appear wordlessly um, at the end of the Phaedo before he is executed. Um, but it must be remembered that Spartan men, though, spent most of their time in training or at war. So they were not at home running affairs. Instead, it was their wives who oversaw the management of their property, which included a lot of slaves and other laborers. Indeed, while the nation was looked after at all, after, by, at all times by the Gerousia of two kings and 28 senators and by the five ephors, individual homes and to some extent the provinces were frequently overseen by women, especially when the army was off fighting, which was often. A Greek woman visiting Sparta around the time of the Persian War reputedly spoke with Gorgo, who was the wife of Leonidas, the Spartan king who died fighting at Thermopylae. This foreign woman, amazed by what she saw, remarked to Gorgo that Sparta was the only place in the world where women were able to rule over men. Gorgo replied that this was appropriate because we are the only women who bring forth men. This is such a sterling comment, you should repeat it to yourself and try to digest its entire significance. Gorgo, in one sentence, manages to support the idea of female superiority in Sparta while, take note, 
simultaneously talking up the men of her society. We are the only women who bring forth men. Both the women and the men of Sparta, in her eyes, are the finest that the world has to offer. And of course, in the typical self-assured and supremely self-confident way of the Spartans, she also offhandedly disparages the men and women of all other cultures. Now, Spartan wives were different than other wives in another way. According to Plutarch, Spartans were so consumed with desire for their offspring to be superior, for the next generation to be strong, that wives would even be lent out as breeding partners to other men if the two seemed likely to produce an exceptional child. In support of this impartial devotion to racial integrity beyond all bounds of marital or familial loyalty, we have these words from the mother of Brasidas. Brasidas was a Spartan general during the Peloponnesian War. He died in battle, and his mother was told, respectfully, that there was not another man so great in all of Sparta. His mother replied, Do not say that. Brasidas was a good man, but there are many in Sparta better than he. So impartial were the Spartans in their appreciation of their men and their masculine qualities. And Spartan mothers reputedly all said one thing to their sons when they sent them off to war. Return with your shield or on it. The Spartan shield was too heavy to run away with. Any man that came home with his shield had conquered on the field of battle. If he, was not, if he could not do that, he was expected to die there fighting and to return brought home by his friends on his shield. Surely this was part of what motivated Leonidas and his 300 soldiers when they held back the Persians at Thermopylae. The dead were buried inside the city, according to Plutarch, so that all, especially the youth, might become inured to the presence of death. Bodies were buried with a simple scarlet cloth covering them. A few olive leaves might be scattered over them, but nothing else was allowed so as to minimize the spectacle. Only those men who had died in battle and women who had died holding some unspecified sacred, sacred office, according to Plutarch, might get an inscription on their grave. And mourning the dead was limited to 11 days. On the 12th day, a sacrifice was to be made to Demeter, the goddess of the harvest and the earth. And then, the next day, the sun would rise over the living and the dead in Sparta. According to Plutarch, Lycurgus, the great lawgiver who reordered Spartan society, Lycurgus divided the land into 30,000 roughly equivalent shares and redistributed them to the Spartan populace. Each share was basically enough land to support a household, which probably meant an extended family along with all the slaves to do the work. In all the land of Laconia, during this classical era in Greece, there probably lived a total of less than 400,000 people, perhaps much less. But of that number, the Spartan citizens were a minority. Estimates of the actual Spartan population vary, with conservative guesses coming in at only a little over 30,000 total men, women, and children while others might go at different times as high as 70,000. Even still, given that many were women and children and some of that number would have been men too old for combat, the Spartan army probably would have never had more than 10,000 soldiers total, probably less than that. Yet their army would be feared and respected as far away as Persia, where armies numbered in the millions. Given these numbers, it's time to consider who all the other people living in the Spartan lands were. It is time to discuss the Helots, 
That's H-E-L-O-T-S, Helots. Prior to the time of Lycurgus, most likely, the Spartans had already conquered all of Laconia, the territory that surrounds the city of Sparta, and they had also brought the province of Messenia under their control. All of this in apparent contradiction, once again, of that famous rule about not conquering. Now, Messenia is the portion of the Peloponnesian Peninsula just to the west of Laconia. The people of these lands, the Spartans mostly turned into slaves, though there were some unknown number of people known as Laconian or Lacedaemonian who apparently were not Spartans but were also not slaves either. Perhaps some had always been free. Perhaps some were helots who had bought or otherwise achieved freedom. The numbers are not clear, but historians do agree that the helot population, the slaves, were the most numerous, constituting a population of at least 200,000 inhabitants of the land, perhaps much more. This caste system had come into being prior to Lycurgus. The slave population was known as the helots. A helot had few, if any, rights in Sparta. He was not allowed to leave his land. He was not allowed to choose his profession. Now, if you do the numbers, you will realize that the Spartans were greatly outnumbered by the helots, by a ratio of something like three or four to one. Contemporary observers and fellow Greeks remarked that the Spartans lived under constant threat of violent revolt from the helots, who burned with resentment at their condition. The Spartans, aware of this, officially declared war on the helots every year to remind themselves of this fact. Now, this does not mean that they marched out to battle the helots every year, only that they maintained the helots at a distance socially, though they lived among the Spartans and they did their menial labor. And there's no doubt that the Spartans did commit atrocities against the helots regularly, if only to remind them of their place. A secret police force apparently wandered the countryside, putting helots to death for a variety of crimes. During times of general military mobilization, though, helots were given arms and brought to combat, but under strict supervision, and they were only armed lightly in comparison to the Spartans, who were trained almost entirely as hoplites. I will explain what a hoplite warrior was in a future episode, because it was a type of infantry soldier used by various Greek peoples, and hoplites gained particular notoriety during the Persian War and during the Peloponnesian War. For the time being, just understand that the true Spartan soldiers were heavy infantry, wearing metal armor, carrying swords and spears, while the helots would have been given slings, daggers, javelins, and so on, and wore no armor or only something very light made of leather or something padded. Face to face with the Spartan army, they would not stand a chance. Now, arming of the helots happened during the Peloponnesian War when the Spartan need for troops was high. But according to Thucydides, who fought as an Athenian general in the war and who later chronicled its events, in 425 BC, during the sixth year of the war, the Spartans assembled their helot forces and asked for them to choose men of their own number who had performed, performed most valiantly and fought capably in recent combat so that they might receive their reward. 2,000 helots were so elected by their comrades, and these 2,000 men walked off to a celebration with the Spartan army, assuming that they would receive money or even freedom as their, re their reward. They were never heard from again, and were presumed massacred. The message to the helots was clear. Just do what you're told, and don't stick your neck out. The helots did not take this lying down. There were frequent helot uprisings throughout the history of Sparta, and it may be this focus on keeping down their slave population that kept the Spartans from going much beyond their own borders in general. They were busy maintaining their own paradise at home, which relied intensely on slave labor. 
The helots surrounded them and surrounded their wives and children, so these slaves had to be frequently reminded to obey and submit to Spartan will. And the longer the army was away or was occupied fighting, the more opportunity the slaves had to rebel. His laws having become institutions of life in his homeland, Lycurgus, in his senior years, decided to travel. He made the Spartans swear an oath that they would not change any of his laws until he returned. Then he journeyed to Delphi, where the oracle told him that he had done well and that his people would become famous for his efforts. Then, according to one tale, Lycurgus stayed there and starved himself to death so that the Spartans might be bound to their oath not to change their laws forever. And his legacy remains, even though Sparta is no longer an independent nation of warriors and fierce, proud women ruling over a slave state. Even today, thousands of years later, Laconia is still politically the most conservative province of the modern Greek state. The city of Sparta has never, never elected a left-wing leader. In 1967, a military junta took over all of Greece. This junta collapsed in 1973, and a nationwide referendum was held in 1974 to decide on how the country would move forward, with a republic or with something else. Laconia was the only province to vote for bringing back the monarchy in 1974. Now, I'm going to stop the narrative here. I know many listeners want to hear about Leonidas and the 300 men fighting the Persians and the numerous battlefield endeavors of the Spartans throughout the centuries. I will get to all those things in future episodes. This episode was just to provide the background for those episodes on the Persian War, the Peloponnesian War, and all the history that happens after that. Also, this provides, and this may be unexpected for some of you, this, this episode provides some background to coming episodes on Greek philosophy. Now, the Spartans might seem to have very little connection to philosophy, but you will see when we get to Plato and his dialogue called The Republic that Sparta was, in fact, the template for what many Greek philosophers like Socrates and Plato desired to see in a nation-state. This may be hard to believe, but it's true. Socrates became an enemy of the government in Athens because he had supported the Spartan takeover of the city at the end of the Peloponnesian War, and he was known to be anti-democratic. When we read Plato's Republic, it will sound oddly similar to what we have already heard about the Spartans, about the division of the society into classes consisting of rulers, warriors, and the masses, about the communism or sharing of women, about only defending the land militarily and not conquering, and so on. But all that in good time. The next episode will bring us to Athens. Again, that episode, that episode will cover culture and events up until the time of the Persian War, which will have its own episodes in the future. Until then, I thank you for listening to the Western Traditions Podcast.